Good morning. It's a real privilege to be here to minister to you. I've been looking forward to this for several weeks. Um, your pastor, Dana, called me and said, you know, our church has ministered together in New Path, and I think it'd be great if we got to know one another and, and maybe we could exchange pulpits. I said, oh, that's a great idea. Now, one of the young women in our church said, look, we really want to do this right. Here's what we need to do. When you go preach somewhere so we can get to know one another, let's say like five of us go with you and five of them go with their pastor, and that way we can really mix it up. So maybe we'll try that next time. Um, so many of our folks are involved in New Path Ministry, and you, uh, you obviously know that your pastor is the chairman of that board. One of our elders is on that board, Greg, uh, Greg Field, and a couple of the women that are members of our church uh, are, run the centers, uh, one in Richwood and one in Marysville, and, and so we have real great connections there. But I also know Dana as a colleague in ministry, and it's been my privilege to work with him in some different areas and I want to tell you something I maybe you know this already you got a great pastor here guy's a shepherd he's got a shepherd's heart and he's willing to do the hard things and so uh, I appreciate guys like that I really do and um, um, and I'm not telling you to be thankful or anything I'm just saying I I love the guy I hope you do too <laughs> And uh, I really appreciate his ministry, I appreciate his heart, and it's just been a privilege to get to know him over these last several years. Um, first time I met him was on that Cracker Barrel out on 36 and 71 on the other side of Delaware. It's the first time we met and spent some time together, and, and uh, a couple more times after that, and over the years we've gotten to know each other. So I really appreciate Dana, and um, I'm just uh, privileged to, to be here this morning, to be a part of of your fellowship. Now I want to start out by apologizing and telling you that the text for this morning that I sent for the bulletin was absolutely wrong. It's not 12, 1 through 9, it's 12, 10 through 13, 1. So nevertheless, we're going to read the whole chapter, but uh, I felt bad about that. As I was going over my sermon, I thought, oh no, I sent them the wrong text. That's not the text I'm preaching from. Nevertheless, right? The Lord's providence is such as it is, and um, I'd invite you right now to turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. As you're turning there, let me just give you some background to this, to this book. When you read those first 11 chapters, it comes to a screeching halt at the end of chapter 11 after the Tower of Babel, where God's judged all of mankind, and suddenly it's like, the reader is left with the question, what's going to happen now? He's angry, and he's scattered them, he's judged them. What's going to happen? Chapter 12 now takes the focus of the whole book and narrows it down to one man. Before, it's been kind of universal. Tell them about humanity and how we got where we are. And now we come to this screeching, halting point where, wow, God's angry. What's going to happen? Chapter 12 starts out with the focus being narrowed to one man. And where chapter 11 ends with, uh, God judging mankind, now we come to this part where he says, oh, with this man, I'm going to bless all the nations, you see? And so the writer, Moses, is trying to get us to see a certain thing. And it's my view that the book of Genesis is the story of God being faithful to his promise that there's going to be a seed that he promised way back in Genesis 3.15, right? The seed he promised there. 
has now been narrowed to this one man in this nation that's going to come from him. And Genesis is the story of all the crazy, wild things that happen um, in that family and how God remains faithful to his promise so that that seed survives and makes it, okay? I think that's what the book of Genesis is about. So as we come to chapter 12 then, we're coming to the point where God's narrowed the focus now down to this one man, and he's going to say, here's what I'm going to do with this seed. I'm going to use it to bless all the nations. I'm going to, it's going to come through this man. So let you follow now as I read in Genesis chapter 12. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Our text is Genesis 12:10 further, but we need to get the whole context. So we'll start reading in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now, There was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Let's pray. Father, would you open your word this morning? Would you help us understand it? Lord, not just understand the story of of Abraham, but what you want to tell us through this text. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves in the mirror of your word and to change as a result. Thank you for this word. It is so clear. It it, It penetrates our hearts. It is living and active, and we thank you for that. Would you 
use that word this morning in our hearts as we look to you, as we look into your living word. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul Savage was a dear friend of mine. Last Saturday, I stood at the foot of his casket as we committed his body to the ground. He lived his last months knowing he had ALS, or what we call Lou Gehrig's disease. But Paul was also a man of faith. He was a man who believed the promises of God. He lived in light of the promises of God, and and that was particularly evident in the last months of his life. Because he believed he was headed for glory, because he believed that he would actually rejoice in Jesus' presence the moment he died, he lived differently. He lived differently. When he found out that diagnosis, he let everyone know, well, here's my goal then. I want to finish well. He was not, he's not afraid to say that. He'd tell everybody. In fact, um, our youth group went over to work at his house to help out get get some things um, done around there. And when they were done, he gathered them around his chair. And he spent some time telling them, you know what? You live your life, but you got to finish well. And he talked to them about that. He didn't lose an ounce of joy in the whole ordeal. He and his wife, Glenna, had this little radio show they called Heaven's Express for a, a number of years. And the Thursday before he died, just like five days within his death, his pastor and I were, were um, doing a radio broadcast with him, his last one. And in that radio broadcast, I mean, he's just out open about it. He says, this is my last radio broadcast. I'm, I'm dying. And, and we spent the whole hour talking about how do you face death. He wasn't shy about it. He, he didn't shy away from it. He talked about it. He joked about it. You knew Paul. He's just tons of corny jokes and puns. Um, and he didn't lose an ounce of joy in the whole ordeal. He soldiered on continuing to share the gospel and, and to encourage other people with what was going on. And that's because he was a man of faith. He believed what God had. He actually believed what God had promised. Now I want to imagine for a moment that Paul did not have a vibrant faith, that he wasn't living in the light of God's promises, that, that his faith faltered. And that's not hard to imagine because we all know people whose faith faltered. We all know ourselves. <laughs> and when our faith falters, I might have seen a man who became frightened and despairing, even angry. A man who, instead of encouraging others, could have just been, be taken refuge and refused to see others. I've seen that happen with people. Maybe he would have been a weeping man who sits in his chair saying, Why me? Why is this happening to me? Now, in our text this morning, we actually have for us a case study in someone who has faith, but whose faith falters. Both, right? A man of faith whose faith falters at a crucial moment. And this is a study on someone who, for the moment, does not live by faith. Now, 
in verses 1 through 9, we see tremendous faith in Abraham. Unbelievable faith. He's this, this moon worshiper living in a Canaanites, or in a Mesopotamian city, and all of a sudden the true and the living God appears to him, captures his heart, and says, hey, I'm going to make you a promise that you're going to possess this land. And on the basis of that promise, and all these other promises that he mentions in, in that text about a blessing to all the nations, and making your name great, and all those promises that he makes to him. On the basis, just that bare promise, what does Abraham do? He leaves Everything that's familiar to him. And by the way, this is long after retirement, too. He's 75 years old. Now, look, you know, we all get comfortable in our lives, don't we? He's a man who's comfortable, man. He's got all... And he leaves on the bare promise of God. The radical obedience of this man is unbelievably crazy, wild, real faith, right? It's amazing in those first nine verses that you see that. But in our text this morning, beginning in chapter 10, we see how this man of great faith forgets those promises and embarks on a course of action that reveals his lack of faith, his faith faltering. Now, again, let me just say this. Before we start looking down our noses at Abram now, remember that your faith falters too. Your faith falters as well. Now, if you want to get the main point of this text, you have to see that Abram's not the main character but God is. And if you're going to catch what God wants you to get in this text, you've got to see God as the main character. Now, what does God intend to do with this text? God intends to motivate you to live by faith, to help you live your life trusting God and His promises, to live like you really believe that what God says is true, and living in dependence on those promises to prepare you for the time when you may have to say, I want to finish well, right? He wants you to learn to live by faith. Now, as you read this story, two questions come to mind, and they're the two questions that we're going to try to answer this morning. What happens when you do not trust God and His promises? What happens when you do not live by faith? That's something we always have to ask ourselves. What happens when I don't live by faith? All right? And the second question is, can you trust God? Can you live by faith? So let's look at the first question. What happens when you do not trust God? Now the whole story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, the whole story of of this man is propelled by his faith or lack of it through a number of conflicts that test his faith until at the very end he passes with flying colors and he shows himself to be this incredible man of faith. And so the whole story moves along with God testing him at certain points. And you see him faltering and growing and faltering and growing. And that's what's happening here. Now, I don't want to be too redundant, but let's look at our text one more time, okay? Let's pick it up in verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. 
So, so say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, She is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. All right, let's look at this together, shall we? Now, Abram's just entered the land, having come to Canaan, believing the promises of God. He'd already pitched his tent in the land when he finds the land unable to support him and his family. What hope is there for this great nation that God has promised now? What hope is there? What hope is there if we starve to death here? At the very beginning, the whole project starts falling apart. Abram's faith is at once put to the test, and he falters, and he heads to Egypt. Now, just before he enters Egypt, he finds himself faced with an insurmountable problem. His 65-year-old wife is drop-dead gorgeous. Right? Can't do anything about that. Right? She is she doesn't look sixty-five, evidently. And some Egyptian finding out that she's married is gonna kill Abraham to get her. And if he dies, what happens to the promise? Huh? If he dies, what happens to God's promise that he's gonna bless the nations through his seed? It's done. So right away, I'm in a land that God has promised, but it's unable to support me. What happens to the promise then? And look, if we go to Egypt and they know that I'm married to this gorgeous woman, they'll kill me and of promise, right? What are we going to do? So he comes up with a plan. He says, look, we'll tell everyone you're my sister. Now listen to me. Listen to me carefully. I don't believe that Abram's the kind of guy who throws his wife under the bus. I don't think he's saying... Listen, I'll sacrifice your virtue just to stay alive. I don't believe that's happening. If he tells everyone that she is his sister, he's dead. Um, I'm, that he's his wife, then he's dead. But if he tells people that she is his sister, they're going to have to negotiate for her hand. Got it? They're going to have to come to him and ask permission to marry. And they're going to have to negotiate the dowry and all that kind of stuff. Maybe that'll give them enough time to come up with an escape plan of some kind. Or maybe to hightail it out of there. All right, if he has to. I don't think he's going to throw her under the bus. It's like this. If they know you're my wife, the only way to get you is to kill me. But if they think you're my sister, then they'll at least have to negotiate with me for you. That might give us some time to escape the problem. Okay? So I think that's what's going on. But then he hits a snag he hadn't counted on. You know what it is? The guy who's interested in her 
does not have to negotiate with anybody because he's the most powerful man in the world at the time. He'll just take what he wants, all right? (laughs) Sure enough, Abram's entourage gets into Egypt. Some of Pharaoh's staff sees this woman, report to Pharaoh about this woman's unbelievable beauty, and so the ruler just takes her and makes her part of his harem. He adds him, her to his collection of wives. He makes her part of his harem. With all his planning, with all his scheming and planning, at the end of the day, Abram ends up powerless. Absolutely powerless. However, notice this, Pharaoh's not an unreasonable man. He graciously gives Abram a dowry. You see that, do you not? Um, at verse 16. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. That. He, he, he's a nice guy. He takes this guy's sister, but he also gives him a dowry. He gives him a big, a big, uh, a bunch of stuff for his sister. Now, at this point, I can see Abraham doing this. <gasps> ah! How did we get to this point? How in the world did we get here? How did this happen? Because what? He had a brilliant plan, right? He had a brilliant plan. He had everything worked out. He had everything absolutely worked out. It was going to work okay, but now where is he? You see, he had an absolutely brilliant plan, but he lacked one essential quality. You know what it was? Faith. He lacked faith. He was brilliant in his plan, but he lacked faith. Now, remember what God had promised Abram, and I think this is key. Look at verses 2 and 3 for a moment. Remember what God said to him, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land of Canaan. So there's a whole bunch of promises there. Remember what God had promised him. Number one, he's going to promise him a great nation. Number two, a great name that proves to be a blessing. Number three, he's going to be a channel of blessing to the nations. Number four, he gets the land of Canaan, but there's one that he's absolutely, if he's forgotten all of them, he's forgotten this one, the most important one at this point. He had promised that he would honor him and protect him. You see that? He said, even though Yahweh had promised him that he would bless the blessers and curse those who crossed him. Now, do you understand what that means? you understand what that means? It isn't that God says, those who bless you, I will bless. Pat on the head. Good. You bless, you're, you're blessing to my man Abraham. Good for you. And curse those who curse you. Shame on you. Don't do that. It's no. It's this. Those who bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I'm going to deal with them, right? So right there at the beginning, God had promised him honor and protection. But Abram forgets all that, and he starts to manipulate and lie in order to accomplish his own safety and the safety of his wife. He doesn't believe when God says to him, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. You see? He'd forgotten all about that. Abram leaves Canaan and devises his schemes as if God had not promised anything. As if he did not believe what God had really said to him. 
Now notice instead what the absence of faith produces. Notice what the absence of faith produces. First of all, there's a payoff. There's a reward. Yeah, you just look at me and say, what? Yeah, there's a reward. Verse 16, he gets rich. He gets richer because of his lack of faith. He gets wealthier in the process. And by the way, and I think Moses does this on purpose. Do you see the parallel statements in verses 13 and 16? Did you catch that? Notice what it says in verse 13 when he says to Sarai, Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. Look at verse 16. And for her sake, and because of her, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. Do you see the parallel statements there? I think Moses doesn't want you to miss it. It did go well with Abram. But at what cost? You see. There was a payoff. There was a reward. But the cost was much greater, wasn't it? Listen to, the, listen to me now. The lack of faith leads to the birth of sin. Never forget that. The lack of faith will always lead to the birth of sin. Now, some of you are gardeners. My dear wife, Becca, is the best gardener this side of the new earth. Okay? But no matter how good she is, here's what I've noticed. I'm probably the worst, right? I'm not much on gardening. She's fantastic at it. Here's what I've noticed. When you don't plant your tomatoes and your onions and your beets and your beans and potatoes and all that, when you don't plant those things, that that ground just lies there, doesn't it? Nothing happens, right? No. You know what happens. Something still grows, right? A bunch of noxious weeds grow. And that's the point. When you don't live by faith, when you don't live in vibrant trust of God, sin naturally grows up. The lack of faith will always lead to the birth of sin. Because Abram did not live by faith, he harvests a boatload of sin. You see that here? Number one, fear. That's incompatible with the trust of God. A fear of man. He's absolutely terrified. That does not speak well of faith. And that's sin. Lying. He starts to lie. He thinks of himself above everybody else. He thinks above him. He thinks more about himself than he does his wife. He puts others in danger because of his lack of faith. There's silence when he should have spoken up. His lack of faith kept him from protesting uh, Pharaoh's actions. There's the loss of his wife. There's the loss of the voice of God. When you look at the beginning of this chapter, you see him building altars and communing with God. And this, the rest of the chapter, that's not happening. Um, he doesn't bring blessings on others, but he brings affliction on them. And because of his lack of faith, what we see later is that he brings rebuke on himself from a pagan king and thus obscures the glory of God. All of that comes, right, because he's not living by faith. Take it to heart. Write it down. It's good enough to put on a 
This is good enough to put on a board and sell it at Cracker Barrel. The lack of faith always leads to the birth of sin. All right? Now, if that's what the lack of faith looks like, then what would the life of faith look like in this situation? If Abram was living really by faith at this point, what would that look like? Well, then he would have to depend on God to protect him. He'd have to depend on God to protect him. If Pharaoh would have left Abraham and Sarah alone, or if he had blessed them in some way, God would have blessed Pharaoh. But if Pharaoh would have made any moves towards Sarah, dishonoring Abraham, he would have been cursed, and Abram's family would have been protected. He'd promised that. But that seems impossible, doesn't it? Wait a minute. This guy's just a, a nomad, and he's going to stand up to the most powerful man in the world. Are you kidding? But isn't that what faith is about, isn't it? Faith is about believing the promises of God, the clear promises of God, when faced with a reality that says the opposite. That's the essence of faith, isn't it? Am I going to believe God, or am I going to let reality dictate to me? The circumstances dictate to me how I'm going to respond. If Abraham had responded the way he should have, he would have been protected. Yes, a nomad could have protested to the most powerful man in the world at that time. And God would have taken care of him. How is that possible? I don't know. I trust God for that, right? Let me ask you, what does the lack of faith look like in your life? What does the lack of faith look like in your life? What sin do you see in your life because you do not believe God's promises? Are you full of fear? I spent some time with a, with a man that I dearly love who, who has been consumed, absolutely consumed, with fear because he's getting near retirement and he doesn't know what's going to happen. Wait a minute. Hasn't God said, seek my kingdom and I'll provide everything that you need? You see? Fear? Maybe untruth and deception because of your lack of faith? I remember I was working for Brock Manufacturing. It was a long time ago. This is before I came to LaRue. You've seen Brock bins, right? Right, those big, good. That was my bread and butter at one time in my life. Those big agricultural bins, that's what, that's what I worked at. We were shipping a bin to, to Thailand, and I was walking on the truck. I worked on the docks. I was walking on the truck, and I had this pneumatic staple gun, and it went off, boom, right on those roof panels. And I must have put, some, I don't know how deep the holes went. The panels were stacked. At that moment, I had a choice. I could just not say a word, and those panels would have got all the way to Thailand. Probably would have figured out they were leaking. Probably would have had to order new, but maybe no one would know that I did that. But if I tell them the truth, what's going to happen? You idiot. You're done. What am I going to do, right? What is living by faith going to say? Well, I told them. I said, hey, Bruce, I... You know, I think I ruined some roof panels. And God still met our needs. I, the job was still mine. 
No, they didn't get rid of me. I remember that choice as clear as it was as if it's yesterday. Some of you are sitting here and you're thinking, my parents are idiots. My parents do not understand me. They do not understand me at all. They are just clueless. I can't believe that, you know, God gave you the parents that you needed. How do I know that? Because they're your parents and he's the sovereign. He gave you what he thinks you needed. And the reason is that you're, you're, you're griping and disrespecting your parents is you don't believe the promises of God when he says, oh yeah, I'm working for your good with idiot parents. I don't believe that, God. That can't be true. Yeah, it is. Your disrespect comes from your lack of faith. Maybe you're sitting here and you cannot believe that God works for good because you're single and you're getting involved in impurity. You see, you have a lack of faith in the goodness of God. Right? God, this isn't good for me. I have a better idea. Take whatever sin you can name and if you trace it back to its root, you're going to find a lack of faith. Whatever sin you have in your life, take it to the root and you will find a lack of faith. Unless faith grows, sin will blossom. Now, this narrative was first heard by the Israelites after they left Egypt, right? The book of Genesis, they didn't have a Bible when they left Egypt. Moses was writing these things down or at least telling them these things verbally. So they're hearing this story about their ancestor after they've left Egypt. Maybe they heard it before, orally, before they left Egypt. But you notice something? You should see some interesting parallels here, which I think Moses intended. Things like this. Like them, Sarah and Abraham were threatened in Egypt. They were threatened in Egypt, and these people were threatened in Egypt as well. Like the Israelite nation, the promised seed was in danger. If Sarai remained in the Pharaoh's harem, what would have happened to God's promise of the seed coming through Abraham? It's nullified, isn't it? If she remained in that harem. Well, the promise was endangered for them when Pharaoh, their Pharaoh, decided to kill all the male babies, right? Like them, God used plagues to deliver Abraham and Sarai. Do you see that? He even uses the word. So plagues came on Pharaoh. And because of those plagues, Abraham and Sarah were delivered. Like them, Sarah and Abraham left with great wealth supplied by the Egyptians. It happened to them too. Like them, Sarah and Abraham were sent out of the land. All those parallels are there. Why are they there? They're written for a purpose to show the people of God that although those same events had happened 400 years earlier, the same God could be trusted. The same God could be trusted. He's operating the same way. You can trust this God. So Moses writes this narrative to drive you to the question, can you trust God? Can you trust God? Well, the story continues. God sends these plagues or sicknesses that overwhelms Pharaoh's household. We don't know the details of that. Maybe everybody was struck except for Sarah. And Pharaoh's saying, why are you left? And so she says, well... 
know, the guy I said was my brother is really my husband. Right? So Pharaoh summons Abram and rebukes him for what he had done. He then expels the family from his kingdom, and he sends some officials with him even to escort them out of the land. Got to get rid of these folks. What becomes obvious is that although Abraham did not believe the promises of God, God remained faithful to those promises. God remained faithful to the promises that he had made Abraham. Far from safeguarding the promise, Abraham's crafty strategy nearly messed up the whole plan, or so it appeared. He's gone from the promised land. (coughs) Sarah's lost to Pharaoh's harem, looking like she's not going to be the one that's going to bring the promised seed. Instead of blessing the nations, he becomes a channel of affliction on this nation rather than a channel of blessing for those people. But here's the point. Our sin can never thwart God's gracious purposes. If He's promised it, He's going to keep His promise. Despite Abram's failure, God remained faithful to His promise of protection. He remained faithful to His promise of protection. Despite Abram's failure, God remained steadfast in accomplishing His purpose. The purpose of blessing the nations through Abram and his seed. He stayed true to that, rescued Sarah, got them out of the land. You see? He stayed true to that promise. No one's going to mess with His gracious promise of blessing the nations through the seed. He rescues Sarah, puts them together, and we all know the rest of the story. A year, 25 years later, they have that child. You can trust God because nothing will keep Him from fulfilling His plan of salvation, His gracious plan for you. The God who called the universe into existence by the mere breath of His Word will not be foiled by the blunderings of His human servants. Circumstances, folly, and even sin cannot stand in the way of God's purpose to make Abram and his seed the blessing of all the nations. He's not going to let anything mess that up. Do you ever think you've botched it so badly that God will never use you again? Right? That God's purposes have been somehow frustrated because you've just blown it too many times? Maybe at work, maybe with your children. Maybe you think you'll never be suitable for any kind of a ministry. Listen, you cannot frustrate the grace of God. You'll never be able to frustrate the grace of God. God will remain steadfast to the end in all of His promises. You'll never mess them up. So is the lesson then that you can be lazy or fudge difficult situations and God still wins? Is that the lesson we need to learn here this morning? No. No, not at all. The lesson is that God's glory finds its greatest expression through a people who live by faith. You want God's glory to be seen? Then live by faith. Live like you believe what God says is true. Live by faith. His fame will spread by people who every day live believing the promises of God. Now God's going to bring Abram face to face with difficulties over and over and over again. And you continue to read the story, you see his faith growing and then it falters and it grows and it falters. But listen, 
God wouldn't give up on that man. Like a trainer with a horse, he kept bringing him to the wall to make him jump over until finally he does it. God wouldn't leave him alone. I'm going to make you a man of faith. Now look, every one of us here this morning live in a gap. We live in the gap. I want you to see this. We live in the gap. The gap between what God promises and what appears to be reality. Right? If you tell the truth, you lose your job. But God says, I'm going to meet your needs. If you seek my kingdom, tell the truth and believe that God will take care of you. What if I don't get the promotion because I'm going to spend more time with my family like God intends me to? Right? You're in the gap. What are you going to do? Live in the face of reality or promise? This marriage looks like it's going to kill me. I, I, I can't stand it. Remain faithful, and I'll keep my promise, Jesus says, of giving you an abundant life. Your neighbors are always trying to take advantage of you, and they're making your life miserable. And God says, return good for evil, find peace. And you live by faith by returning good for evil and overcoming that evil with good. Your body aches all the time because of this chronic illness and God says, I'll give you joy as you focus on glory. You see? Do you know, do you know that someone else lived in the gap between the promise and the reality? Someone else has lived there. The one who has promised all the nations as his inheritance came to his own people and they rejected him. The exalted son of man pictured sitting on the throne of judgment in Daniel chapter 7 stood before a council who judged him and condemned him to death. Unlike Abraham who lied to save his life, Jesus told the truth knowing it would cost him his. The one who promised to rule the nations with a rod of iron was scourged by Roman soldiers. The only sinless one ever to live on this earth was hung up on the cross like a common criminal. Right? Jesus lived by faith in what God had promised. And you must live by faith trusting God's promises every day. And the only reason why you can do that is because Jesus lived in the gap too and he died believing the promises of God. And because of that faithful death, you now have the power to live by faith because by his death, he dethroned sin in your life so that you do have the ability to live by faith. You're no longer a prisoner of your circumstances. Like my friend Paul. The only way he looked in the face of ALS and lived the life he did was because Jesus died for him and removed the power of sin 
to dictate the course of his life so that Paul had the ability to live by faith. And that's the same with you. And you can count on the promises of God because he raised Jesus from the dead declaring that what Jesus said was all true and that he was going to keep his promises to his son. You can live by faith. You must live by faith. You can trust the God of Abraham because he's the God of your Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful for your word. As we open it up, it opens us up. It reveals the straying nature of our hearts. It shows us that we are dictated by our circumstances more than we are living by the promises. Father, you are most glorified in us when we live by faith. When the whole world seems against us and you say you're for us, Father, we've got to believe that. All your promises are true. Help us to live as those kind of people who believe your promises. God, work in our hearts. We desperately want to be those kind of people who make our God famous because we don't live like others do. We live by faith. So help us, we pray. Work this in our hearts. Lord, as we come to this table now, our prayer is simply this, that as we come here, our faith would be enlivened today through these things in order that we will believe all the promises you've made, particularly those about our salvation and our forgiveness. God, grant that, we pray, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we want to come to the Lord's table. I'm not sure how you do it, so we'll do it my way, I guess. Um, the guys who are going to be serving, would you come on up? Now, can I say some things to you? I always want to say this at the Lord's table. The Lord's table is not meant for us to sit and look inside to see whether we're worthy enough to come to this table. Because you know what? Nobody's worthy to come to this table. The purpose of the Lord's table is to take the focus off of ourselves and to put it on Jesus. Okay, When Paul says, examine yourselves to see whether you're partaking in a worthy manner, not talking about whether you're worthy enough. He's talking about whether you take it in a worthy manner. And in that context was, are there differences between you that need to be reconciled? If there are, you're coming in an unworthy manner. Are you coming in reverent worship? Are you coming drunk to them, to us? Are we coming in a reverent way? And so let me say to you, this table is not meant for you to start focusing on yourself. It's meant for you to focus on Christ. This table is meant for people struggling with sin. Because one of the reasons why we sin is we're not convinced of the grace of God. We say, oh, God, I blew it. I blew it. And God says, I know. But when you come to this table, I'm telling you, your sins are forgiven when you come to God and ask forgiveness because my son paid for it. 
we have a tendency, we're, we're born legalists. We have a tendency to say, God, I'll make it up. I'll do better. I'll, I'll make it up to you somehow. And this table is intended to show us, listen, you're powerless to make it up to me. You can't do it. You're never going to meet, you're never going to meet my standard. What do you need to know? You need to know you're forgiven. You need to know that I accept you because of what Jesus did. Now, this does not mean you can go out and sin and do whatever you want. But if you believe what I've just said, you'll not want to. And so we come to this table now to celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. So let's partake in a joyful way, shall we?